The Australian Football Video Film Festival podcast is proudly brought to you by LeagueTees.com.au, the retro footy fan gear that makes every week retro round. The League Tees footy shop is packed with footy tees, retro footy jumpers, hoodies, and all things retro footy. That's LeagueTees.com.au. Name the game series from Australian football video. Have you ever bought or rented a videotape that wasn't quite right? Folks, let me warn you. It's bruising, bloody, and very much in your face. And we've pulled out stuff that would make a 16-stone wharfie cry. the last quarter, but a hundred minutes of top footy action. Welcome to the 90s, the decade that delivered. It was a 10-year period in football unlike any other this century. The electrifying 80s, the highs and lows of a dynamic decade of football. Over the next two hours, relive some of the most exciting moments in VFL football in the sensational seven. The Peter Hudson story, Dublin's Jim, the story of Jimmy Steins, the road to victory, Collingwood's struggle to the premiership and the year of the rising saints, St Kilda's fight to the 1991 finals. edition of the Australian Football Video Film Festival. My name is Dylan Leach and this is part one of the electrifying 80s, part of the trilogy, the greatest trilogy that ever was in football cinema. We've done the sensational 70s, now it's time for the electrifying 80s and over the next fortnight we will be presenting one of the best podcast breakdowns of this iconic piece of football cinema you will ever listen to. It's best to introduce the electrifying 80s with none other than Mr. Sandy Roberts. Hello and welcome to another Seven Sports Special. This time, the electrifying 80s, the highs and lows of a dynamic decade of football. Remember fabulous Phil Carmen's altercation with Boundary Umpire Carberry? And of course, the Jacko Show came to town. The Cracker Boys and Peter Bazusto burst on the scene from the West, while the Bears and the Swans settled up north. And, of course, there have been some unforgettable finals clashes. It's all a part of the electrifying 80s. My guests for this episode of the Australian Football Video Film Festival exploring the electrifying 80s is none other than Mr Adam Collins and Shannon Gill. It's been worth the wait. Uh, If you are listening to this at time of release, you know that it's been a bit spasmodic as to when we've been releasing it. Or if you're listening to this in sequence, you're just still enjoying the festival that is a celebration of Australian football video. And we're going into one of the holy trinity. Of course, there's the sensational 70s, the 90s, the decade that delivered. But in this edition, we're looking at the electrifying 80s 
and we have assembled an all-star cast around the world to talk about this excellence in football cinema. And who better to join me than Mr. Adam Collins. Colo, uh, he joins me from London. Uh, welcome to the Australian Football Video Film Festival. Oh, what an honour to be asked onto this podcast. During lockdown last year, uh, some of the... Uh, enjoyable light moments we're listening to the first season of this show so lovely to be asked to contribute to to this episode and returning our first multiple reviewer and probably rain man when it comes to the electrifying 80s uh also that they're both from the greatest season that was uh shannon gill gilly welcome back to the australian football video film festival thank you dylan it it, as colo said it's a tremendous honor i was campaigning for a long time to do this and eventually got the call up so very happy um (laughs) and it does two two podcasts in this series does that make me friend of the show officially friend of the show uh you're officially i think you're australian football video film festival's own that's the status (laughs) you've got now (laughs) oh i'm yeah look i think when you when you sent the message to me i said i was born for this so so i'm looking forward to it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> You've been waiting for the day and we've been waiting for the day where we can finally dissect Electrifying 80s. I'll ask you both, Adam, what does Electrifying 80s mean to you? A tremendous amount, uh, in short. So when I was a kid, so I'm born in 1984. So in terms of memories of the 80s and, and the decade on the field, I don't really have many of them. I mean, my earliest memory of watching football is probably the 1988 grand final. Um, I was there at the 1989 second semi when um, Dermot Burton turned the game on a dime uh, in, in, in the space of a couple of minutes, including the Paul Vanderhaar shirt front. Of course, I remember the 89 grand final. How couldn't you? But as far as the decade, um, it, I feel like I know it because of this video. So we probably received it for Christmas around 1991 or something like that. And my brother and I you know, wore it out. So goes the cliche. We, we watched it before school time and time and time again it was this uh it was uh, good for football the first rob dixon uh documentary he made about mm-hmm. hawthorne's end of season trips between 1987 and 1990 a, a fantastic uh, find i think that gets referenced quite a bit in the final story uh, about the 2000 about the 1991 uh, grand final uh, and back to the future too they, they were the three videos my brother and i would, would sort of rotate through uh, watching something before school each day. So I feel like even though I don't necessarily remember a lot about watching uh, football in the 80s, with, with with the exception of, yeah, a few moments in time uh, and, and a few individual days, which were, I suppose when you're just getting the, the taste for it, uh, this video was the reason why I feel like I, I have a pretty good handle on, 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 the, uh, on the electrifying 80s. And Gilly, you said you were born for this. We consider you a rain man uh, when it comes to electrifying 80s, the electrifying 80s historian (laughs) that you are because uh, you've effectively done a deep dive for this program. But uh, explain to me your relationship with the electrifying 80s. Okay, well, I I watched it the the night. So it it aired, and we might go into this, but it it aired over consecutive Saturdays in 1989. One on the second semi-final weekend, the one that Colo just referenced uh, when Essendon played... Uh, Hawthorne and then it aired on the second part of it aired on preliminary final um, Saturday after the replay so I watched the first one I watched it live on TV and sat there recording it and you know pausing the ads and all that sort of stuff uh, and then set the timer (laughs) 
because I was actually on school holidays and I was lucky enough to, it was it was the air, the airline strike or the pilot strike in 1989. So we had to drive to the Gold Coast for our holidays. And I set the recorder for like, you know, when you used to set the recorder for three days in advance, set the recorder to get that. And I remember the whole way home because I watched that first episode and it was like my mind was blown as, a, as an eight-year-old. I love footy already, but... Um, all of a sudden, everything everything made sense. You know, you you understood what grand finals were and the the history mm-hmm. of and and the emotion with grand finals and and you saw the hits and you saw this and you, it just opened up doors. Um, and we'll probably talk a little bit about the the context of it all later on. But certainly, it became my um, my <laughs> my bible as far as footy footy went. Uh, and and remember. Um, you know, rushing home when we got off, driving home from Queensland and getting home, and just all I cared about was, did it record? And it did. <laughs> I love that. It's such a, it's such a uh, sort of a moment in time thing, isn't it? To set the video recorder to make sure you got it. I know you've told me before, Gilly, about that trip to Queensland because you watched the '89 Grand Final uh, from Queensland, didn't you, with your <laughs> yes, family? I did. I did. Which is, a, it's a whole other story that one. But that was, um, yeah. You, you certainly watched it with um some family and some friends and um you under then understood how adults celebrated grand final day as well um it was a good it was a good day (laughs) now we don't miss a beat when it comes to research on this program and i have dug up our tv guide from when electrifying 80s uh did go for the second part of electrifying 80s first went to air and this so this was after the uh, uh 1989 preliminary final so uh channel 7 aired the replay of the essendon geelong game at waverley uh, then into Electrifying 80s at uh, 7.30, part two of Electrifying 80s, uh, followed by the Clint Eastwood filler, uh, thriller, I should say, uh, play Misty for me. And uh, it was up against a show called Hollywood Legends on the ABC, uh, Dateline on SBS. I don't think anyone listening to this show would have been watching Dateline somehow. Uh, hey Hey was also on, and it was a big night on Hey Hey. Uh, it included uh, Indecent Obsession, Paul Kelly, uh, and Vianetta uh, and uh, oh yeah, it looks like a look like a hoot there. And uh, the price is right over on Channel Ten. So it was an elite <laughs> night's viewing. That's not a bad lineup for Hey Hey, actually. <laughs> and that was um, that was before um, Price is Right. That was Ian Turpy. Price is Right, wasn't it? Before it moved over to Channel Nine. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, that. Yeah, so it was uh, Ian Turpy. Price is Right, and at six thirty on Channel Ten, the great TV game show with Richard Stubbs. So I think this was when uh, Channel Ten was going through a phase of just really bad game shows in prime time. <laughs> and, uh, and a pretty good and a pretty good. Option play Misty for me. That that won the uh, that won the best picture at the Oscars in 1970, didn't it? From memory. So. Just hope we're lucky enough to grab her the next time she tries it. Tries what? To kill you. The next scream you hear will be your own. Clint Eastwood, play Misty for me. It's it's a good uh, well, a good run through. I I would have kept it tuned in on seven. Um, now. In our research, it's also come to our. It's we've also uncovered uh, undiscovered interviews that were in electrifying eighties, and it's been a mystery to you, Gil. Uh, just my head has been hurting for weeks after you alerted me to this fact that there are interviews in a in a what appears to be a recorded from TV um, version of electrifying eighties on that's popped up on YouTube in in the last twelve months. But I'm sure that the thing I recorded off TV didn't have these interviews. So I've been ringing people to try and work out what the hell happened. 
because it doesn't make any logical sense to me. Because it what and they weren't in the thing that became the video that you would have watched, Colo, and I think and I ended up mm. getting as well. Oh, if anyone knows, <laughs> was there two versions made of Electrifying Eighties? I don't know. Well. Not to worry, we will be playing those interviews in full in this podcast with both Kevin Bartlett and uh, John Kanga Kennedy uh, in both editions of the podcast. A bit like undiscovered uh, footage in the DVD release kind of. Yeah, DVD extras. That's exactly right. Um, Now, we're going to be doing this over two episodes. Uh, So the first half is going to be 1980 to 1984. And guess what? The second half, yeah, that's right, 85 to 89. So uh, strap yourselves in because we're going into the electrifying 80s. Hey, boys, are you ready for this? Of course. Let's do it. (laughs) All right. Let's start the electrifying 80s with 1980s. It was a summer of discontent at Princess Park when Carlton President George Harris and Premiership Coach Alex Jezelenko departed after bitter infighting. Oh, the lightning, the fire alarm. Yes, uh, it was a summer of discontent at Princess Park. <laughs> that Shakespearean intro uh, from uh, Craig Willis there. And uh, with that, the writing of Electrifying 80s was indeed elite Shannon Gill. It was, and uh, look, this is something that I've known for quite some time, but when you when I got the call to do this, I ha- I had to make a phone call. So I've made the phone call to a guy I know, who other people out there would know too, Mick Lovett, who is the editor of the Footy Record and has been the editor of the Footy Record for many many years. Uh, and the reason I called him is because he wrote the script for the Electrifying Eighties, and I've threatened to ask him about this many times over the years, but I've actually I actually rang him and found out a little few little tidbits just to open things up. First thing, he was approached by Gordon Bennett, the head of Channel Seven or head of sport at Channel Seven, to write the script for the Electrifying Eighties. But he was the second choice. The first choice was Ian Cover from the Quitterbeans, but. Covey had too much going on. So Mick Lovett, who was then at the Herald, got the call up. He wrote it on a typewriter at home. Um, Channel 7 delivered a heap of videos for him to go through to sort of jog his memory. Um, he came back with the, with the initial script for 1980 and 1981, and they said to him, no, 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 no. You need to cut that in half, and then need to cut that in half, and then cut it in half, and cut it in half, and cut it in half, and cut it in half again. Then you're at the right time frame. So he's got into a long spiel about each year and they've said no this isn't going to work we need to cut it cut it apart um and yeah he, he remembers a few things about it all but uh, the other thing he does remember is it it was it was an extra job for him and it's um it paid for a new dishwasher for him so he always when he said he always looked at my dishwasher and thanked the electrifying 80s for his dishwasher it, it actually that explains a few things here Keely, before we get too deeply into this and, and we'll, I suppose we'll go through the editorial selections they've made uh, as to what gets in and what comes out. But it does feel so brief sometimes. That's not a that's not a criticism. It's just an observation, really. That I mean, even off the top, the first thing that Sandy mentions before we get into boom, 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 the first time. It was a um, you know Sandy's first reference point is uh, Phil Carmen belting the boundary umpire um, Carberry Graham Carberry. <laughs> um, but but still, like the things that got a Guernsey. 
it wasn't always the most noteworthy football moments. So, for example, final series occasionally um, will barely get a mention with the exception of the grand final or maybe one final than the grand final. But it's more the, the trivia and colour and movement. So I, I kind of understand now that mm. if they were cutting it and cutting it and cutting it, you probably would keep in Phil Carman belting uh, the boundary umpire. Yeah, and I, I spoke to a guy called Brad Smith who works at Fox Footy now who was a, a young guy at Channel 7 back then um, about it as well. He was in, involved as a producer on it and he, he sort of said similar things is that they they didn't go too much into the, I suppose, the political or newsworthy element like the 70s did a little bit and later the 90s did um, because they just wanted it so short and sharp. And, and I think while... It's part of it says, oh, this should have been in, this should have been in, should have been in. The fact that it's so short and sharp, the pace of it is fantastic because it just doesn't let up. It, everything's so, you move from yes. one thing, you, ne- you never get bored watching this and you want more, which is, you know, a pretty good thing. And and, and then for me anyway, and I'm, I reckon it would be very similar for you guys, is that this was the, this was the entree to footy history. So I watched this and then I thought, oh, wow, I've got to, I've got to see this or I've got to find out that. So it sort of, it wasn't, didn't tell me everything, but it made me want to learn more. You know, like mm. not that you would like this, Kai, but the 84 grand final last quarter, like I looked at that and went, oh, wow, I've got to watch this. You know, all these things that sort mm. of came from mm. it. It's not only just the writing and the sharp, sharp, sharp writing and the pictures that accompany it, but it's also the backing track royalty-free music. Uh, that's featured throughout the entirety of Electrifying 80s. Now, in Sensational 70s, we got to know the, the riffs of Classical Gas, uh, the theme to this program, very well, uh, and, and that obscure uh, Beatles uh, Oompa Loompa Band uh, track in one of the montages. But um, unfortunately, I still haven't tracked down what the royalty-free uh, production track was to Electrifying 80s. But if you know the tune, everyone here listening knows the tune. It's that... The VFL's decision to resurrect the night series during the 1970s had been a winner and it proved an exciting alternative to the day competition. And at the end, it's sprawling and it goes into like... It then slows down and it's it's like a, a symphony in in five parts. It's got all these little <laughs> elements to it. It's, it's and, and it always had the end bit, the grand final. That was the end of the year, wasn't it? That was. I feel like that's a soundtrack for me. All the Hawthorne grand finals from the eighties are played to that music. Yeah. If any, if I ever got a copy of that music, I would just make it the soundtrack to my life. I would do a year by year <laughs> yes. recap of my life with just short, short, sharp observations, <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then just finish with that. Dun, 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 you know, it'd just be fantastic. Um, they don't miss much in 1980. It is just, it's a pretty full-on year because it starts with Jezza. Uh, moves to Carlton, uh, moves from Carlton to St Kilda as part of the summer of discontent at Princes Park. Um, then we get the uh, Phil Carman Carberry incident. Fiery Phil Carman was in hot water over this incident with boundary umpire Graham Carberry. Talking to all, did you see that one? Did you see that one? Did you see that uh, one? Then we go into. <laughs> They just say that. Then we go into the absolute shambles end to the Escort Cup Grand Final with <laughs> Kerry Good. Good kicks this goal. They've won the match. 
Oh, what a climax to this 1980 uh, Escort Cup Grand Final. Good's already kicked three goals. He's only about uh, 25 to 30 metres out, dead in front. He kicks this, they've won the game. He's put it through and North Melbourne have premiered. North Melbourne have won the match. What a game. I don't think I've ever seen anything like it in my life. Like the absolute shambolic ending to the to what the Escort Cup. That was a midweek competition at the time, um, and then we we really exposed the in the time where we're talking about concussion rules and send offs and, and better player practices. You watch nineteen eighty in, uh, in electrifying eighties, and um, you know we get the again brilliant writing from Mick Lovett they breed them tough in Tigerland but they breed them tough in Tigerland and Burke went to the forward line with blood streaming from a deep cut he helped Richmond to victory with inspiring play like this well, isn't he a marvellous guy God, I don't know he's going to see the goals <laughs> look at the blood just oozing out of these uh, forehead Francis Burke is just playing on the ground with blood streaming down his face in the uh, at Arden Street against North Melbourne for Richmond. Pretty blood rule. It was always a, was it, that it was kind of like from again talk referencing watching my brother over and over again. We would regularly get our jumper <laughs> and rub it down our face as though we were Francis Burke <laughs> with Louis Richards. How's he going to see the goals? And that that jumper looked so tight and uncomfortable. It was just yes. oh, it made me feel it made me squirm. They, they they made a brilliant of those um, Toyota reenactment ads uh, with Francis Burke and the, um, I think it's Dave Lawson and um, Steve Curry uh, mm. pouring uh, tomato sauce all over his face a few <laughs> years back. But uh, uh, goodness me, that that um, that just really shows because in I guess sensational seventies had a far more structure to it than electrifying eighties. Electrifying eighties is very short and sharp, whereas sensational seventies is like here's a couple of good goals and now here's twenty minutes of bitho <laughs> from the year because that's all the vision we can. Yeah, the, the, it, it's def, it's definitely sharper and it's it sort of like it, it as you said it hits it, it it says a summer of discontent and colour. It doesn't go into the full details why, but then you you know um, if I think if you're interested in it then you, the, you you deep dive into it and there's. It's yeah, it's the it's the entry point of some really fascinating stories, and that one with, you know, Carlton have won the grand final in 1979, and then the, the president decides that, you know, I've got lots of capital as president, I'm going to try and do things a bit differently with more power, and they get him out, and Jezza throws in his lot with the with the president and leaves. Like it's it's one of the biggest footy stories ever, but these are the sort of things that it leads you into. And also with ground rationalisation, Gilly, I reckon for sort of our generation where we, we just just touched the end of it and Dylan, I suppose it's just before your time going to the footy where um, the idea that Carlton would be playing Collingwood in front of 30,000 people round one at Princess Park, Princess Park. Even, by, even by the early 90s, that wasn't happening. I mean, no. very occasionally, very occasionally. I know there was the, the, the clash in, in 1999 where they called it the last suburban battle and all the rest of it. But by that stage, they were playing those games at VFL Park. They, were, they, they mm. were the match of the day. They weren't in that situation where only 30,000 people could get in. But yeah, as a kid, I, I and even now, I must say, I still sometimes have dreams about going to Princess Park, which was the first ground I would go to as a kid watching Hawthorne play and seeing Hawthorne play there again. Because, um, yeah, there was something special about the suburban venues. And I like how they, they go for that right off the top with Carlton Collingwood. I want to go back to Phil, the Phil Carmen incident. This footage is going to be used forever and ever and ever in every single highlight video. I think it's one in four Australian football videos uh, features uh, Phil Carmen uh, headbutting. contractually Graham obliged Carmen. to um, every, every single one. Yeah, I, 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 think, I, I think there's a Carmen quota involved. 
Um, the, uh, the interview they show of <laughs> Phil Carmen just reflecting on his 20-week 20, 20 suspension is hilarious. Yeah. When did the enormity of the suspension hit you, this morning or last night when you are driving home to Lilydale? Well, I don't know whether it's really hit me yet. You know, I just know that I'm not playing Saturday and it's going to be some time before I do. There is a bit of a story behind that in that he left, like, after the tribunal hearing. And remember, he actually only got 16 weeks for headbutting the umpire, which seems pretty light on. But this the story behind it was that everyone thought he'd get six weeks. Like, at the time, it was seen as a... 16 weeks for headbutting an umpire. That's, that's ridiculous. But... Um, he didn't speak to the media, and apparently Stephen Phillips took the Channel Seven chopper out to Lilydale, and that's where they were they were buzzing around. The chopper was buzzing around his house, and eventually said, oh, "I'll have to go outside and do the interview," um, which he, you know, talks about and, and features in, in Electrifying Eighties. And then there's more just loose moments of the field in 1980 because then there's that fight between uh, Carlton coach Percy Jones and Tony Jewell uh, during the uh, finals at Waverley. Peter Jones and Tony Jewell could not agree on the scores or something on qualifying final day. Almost, uh, came to blows. Well, that's unusual when the two respective coaches get into loggerheads. That is another... It's actually explored a lot in a, a book, recent book by Dan Eddy on the that Carlton period. And... Um, the fight, if you've seen it, it looks as if Percy Jones actually throws a, a full-on punch at Tony Jewell, which it's not really. Apparently, it was more of a push and a shove, but the, the, there's images and vision which looks like he's, he's actually punched him. The story was is that that fight was over a guy called Dr. Rudy Webster, who was a, a guy from Barbados originally who'd played first-class cricket. Um, he played, a, played some county matches, I think, Colo, so maybe check, check that out. Uh, you know, at some point, um, right? And he had come to Australia in in the late sixties, early seventies, and become the sports psychologist for Carlton. He was seen as having all these new age methods that were going to motivate players. Anyway, he ended up defecting to Richmond in nineteen eighty, and that fight was over Rudy Webster because. Percy Jones comes out as coach of Carlton and sees Rudy Webster and starts going and and then Tony Jewell walks in and that's that's how the fight started. It was all over a guy called Rudy Webster. Pretty handy numbers, Killy. He uh, he played eight, <laughs> 70 first class games and took uh, 272 wickets at 19.44. That's not bad. Mind. Most and, of them for Warwickshire by the looks of things. And another just two little other tidbits on him. During World Series cricket, he managed. He was the manager for the West Indies team during World Series cricket. Ah, right. And I think later on, he if in this at the grand final part of this year, he um, you can actually see him very close to Tony Jewell being lifted up on people's shoulders. So if you pause, <laughs> if you pause your video, you'll be able to see Rudy Webster in the background there. And, of course, 1980 does finish off with uh, the Tigers looking like the absolute team of the 1980s in the grand final. Uh, seven goals from Kevin Bartlett. Uh, the then record margin for Richmond in a grand final and a glorious era awaits at Tigerland. It was Richmond by a record margin of 81 points and the experts were predicting the Tigers would be the powerhouse of the 1980s. And with that, that has been the Australian Football Video Film Festival Electrifying 80s. Thanks for joining us. Uh, no, 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 no. no. I, I like how they do the grand final and, and the build-up to it. I mean, I like how they sort of, they, they, they seed the KV story in breaking the games record earlier in the piece 
And could we talk about mm. games records through 1980? I mean, Cal Dritrich finishing and, uh, and, and him having played 285 games. And, and we're kind of into this space already. Uh, because the game's record had been broken earlier in the season. Then, you know, I suppose KB breaks it again. And by the time we get to the grand final, I mean, the, the 1980 grand final, in my mind, uh, is always going to be Collingwood and Fitzroy because how it played out in the club. Uh, and the idea that uh, there, were, there were players from the club who who, who played in the winning side uh, in in the uh, in the film, but but the losing side, of course, uh, that day, including I suppose Peter Dacos, uh, and yeah, Bartlett turning Magro inside out in the forward pocket to kick his seventh goal, the record, and so on. And I think that's the signing off point about saying that Richmond looked like they're going to be the team of the decade. It's, it's a nice full stop, having built it up well. Let's have a look at 1981. 1981 was a year of change, even before the season had started. Would this be the biggest year of coaching of the coaching merry-go-round 1981? Uh, Adam, Shannon, discuss. Definitely. I mean, this is huge. I mean, Gilly will talk about Barass going back to Melbourne in full kit. By the way, I love Barassi rocking up in the in the jumper and shorts and socks (laughs) after 16 seasons. But Sheedy, Walls, and Blight all getting their start. And Parco goes to Carlton, and Alan Jeans goes to Hawthorne. I mean, they are they are the biggest coaching figures in the decade, and it all happens at the start of '81. Yeah, and yeah, obviously the the Barassi thing was a huge thing, which didn't well, it didn't really succeed in in bringing Melbourne success at that that stage. But um, yeah, he was the biggest name in football going back to his original club, so that was so huge. But yeah, I mean, look, Sheedy was what twenty seven years in the job. You got Robert Walls, who you know coached. Three other clubs as well um, over over the next twenty. years. I think years. he coached the Brisbane Bears at one stage. I know he mentioned yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's interesting that Sheedy and Walls both started at that time, isn't it? Yeah, maybe Shane Strimple just too undisciplined. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and even da- like David oh, Parkin, he, he co- <laughs> David Parkin had coached a flag at Hawthorne a few years before, but you know yeah, he yeah. sort of he'd finished at Hawthorne, and he he ends up becoming David Parkin this. Guru, but he he might have finished up there as a coach, but but Carlton get him along, and obviously success quickly follows. Not only is it a coaching merry-go-round, but 1981 highlights the absolute recruiting spree or rorts, depending on how you see it. If you if you think the uh, Sydney Swans Academy is a bit iffy uh, this day and age, I refer you to Carlton's recruiting spree in, from Western Australia from 1981. It was also the year Carlton dug deep into the vast riches in Western Australia and came up with two overnight stars, a fiery but flamboyant customer called Peter Vazasto and the quietly spoken but highly efficient Ken Hunter. As a point of reference, uh, just getting Ken Hunter and Peter Bazasto because what was WA their recruiting zone at the time, basically? I think I think it was John Elliott and others' bank accounts with the recruiting with the academy. Um, but yeah, they you know, Peter Bazasto and Ken Hunter. And again, watching this as a kid, that was that was sort of the main thrust of of this eighty one season or electrifying eighties. It was. I didn't know who Peter Bazasto was when I watched it as an eight-year-old, but certainly after the next five minutes of um, a vision on the actual final 80s, you'll never forget who Peter Bazasto is. Yeah, he's everywhere, isn't he? The good ordinary player bit with Jack Dyer um, gets a run when he um, goes on the boot eight against South and the huge mark in round one when they beat Richmond, which kind of gets them started. And yeah, that 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 
you know, the bizzosto. I mean, you can kind of hear it, can't you? Peter yeah. Landy uh, on the commentary. But it's not just like one flying mark. It, it felt, the way that it's presented, at least in Electrifying 80s, it feels like it was a weekly occurrence that he was taking these huge hangers on TV. Yeah, and then he... Narration about Peter Bazzasto really brings Craig Willis uh, into the fort, uh, into the fold of electrifying eighties. Because I'm pretty sure this is Craig Willis's first serious hit out. It, for seven it, sport, it is still um, electrifying eighties. When, when, when he when he goes uh, something along the lines of Peter Bazzasto was described by as a good ordinary player by Jack Dyer. We'll let you decide. Everyone that is, except Jack Dyer, who thought Bazzasto was a good ordinary player. Well, Bazusta kicked eight goals in this game against South Melbourne, so we'll let you decide. Sensational. Not bad for a very ordinary player. I hope Jack Dyer watches yeah, it. I believe it's, it, it's... I might have exchanged a couple of messages with him, and I think it is was his first real big-time gig for Channel 7. He wasn't a full-time Channel 7 guy then, but um, and he, I checked a few of the other productions from the time and it, it was his first so uh but he made a great impression in his first first um go at at uh, big time footy just like peter Mazzasso had made a great impression in his first season of vfl footy how's that a flex from gilly oh, i've spoken to gordon bennett and i was texting craig willis <laughs> oh you made craig fucking willis and gordon bennett <laughs> look at this well yeah. goodness me <laughs> We just watch the videos on YouTube in this show and take the piss out of it. That's how we do it here. As I said, the electrifying eighties is is it's it's more than it's more than just a video. It's a way of life. It is. It's a way of life. That's it. A way of life. But speaking of recruitment going insane, um, so Carlton has their WA recruiting spree, and then we see the shot of the Antset Boeing seven two seven landing at Tullamarine, and uh, Brian Peake just getting on the plane. Uh, getting on the helicopter to Geelong Bronwyn Bishop style and makes his uh, presence at Cadinia Park uh, felt immediately. Peak arrived in Geelong by helicopter, pulled on his new jumper and made his presence felt immediately. He was part of the cat's eye which destroyed North Melbourne by 114 points. He's actually in, if you go, if you find the 1981, that was the season that was on YouTube, there's extended highlights of his, of his arrival at, at the, off from the, um, from the helicopter. And uh, it's like the biggest thing to happen in Geelong for years. There's kids have come out to, to watch him get out of the helicopter and so Hanging forth. from Perth, he was taken to a nearby helicopter for a rush trip to Cadinia Park, where he had a light training run with his new teammates. He told Alistair Patterson he was delighted at long last to be a cat. Feels great and I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to said day. Did the criticism level at you by Barry Cable in a recent newspaper article help you finally make up your mind or, or what? Actually, I don't read many papers. Uh, yeah, I, I still don't really understand why, why the plane and the helicopter, like, would he, could he have just got a normal plane and, you know, I, I don't know why they got a helicopter. I, I'm still trying try to work that out. Like, what? Was it really well, I suppose there's, there's a good there's this footy um, there's this footy through line isn't there from Peter Hudson to Brian Peake to Jeffrey Edelston <laughs> yeah. in the space of about ten years helicopters and footy that's a, there could be a podcast in that there's a piece there there's a, there's, a, there's, there's two thousand words there yeah. commission Gilly um, he'll, he'll write for you <laughs> what about the uh, the Jeff Fairing right. goal in 1981 oh. as well which is the oh. I mean again you talk about moments I'm sure it was the same with you blokes as kids you're kind of down the park trying to kick these torps like Jeff Fairing I mean I, I don't think I don't think I ever heard the name Jeff Fairing again outside of the context of what he achieved when kicking a what 
I think they called a hundred meter goal that on the tape. Or maybe that's on the greatest season that was. Uh, but still, the hundred meter goal at Moorabbin, uh, you know, from the center square. Jeff Fearing was not the biggest name in football, but he produced the biggest and straightest kick of the decade in round three against Collingwood. Kick from Fearing to full forward. What the goal! I'm pretty sure Fearing had just been reported yeah. when he kicked it, and he was incredibly frustrated. Right. So incredibly frustrated that he, you know, had to have a date down at the tribunal on the Tuesday night, and uh, he took out yeah. his anger on the football uh, from the centre of Moorabbin and kicked the goal. I'm pretty sure that's um, what inspired him to, well, not inspired, what spurred him on to just go the greatest torpedo. We, we don't talk enough about the Jeff Fairing torp these days. It should be referred to at all times. <laughs> like, it should be like how you, you talk about the kappa. That, that, I think that I think if we went to the schoolyard right now and saw kids playing kick to kick, they would still go kappa. Mm-hmm. I, I like to believe they would anyway. Yeah. Um, and Fairing torp <laughs> should be in the same the same part of the conversation. I mean, I I'm think like, do a, even do a fairing. Exactly. I think even then, like with with um you, in in this in this part of it, we've got sort of the sign of things to come with Peter Dacos, you know, kicking mm. nine, and he, and he's doing mm. it as the ruck rover. You know, as well should be remembered that that Dacos at this point in time is still um is still sort of uh, playing before his knee injury when he was very much a midfielder before he goes to full forward. But again, it's that to people like us who are of a certain age, we knew Dacos as this extraordinarily gifted mercurial full forward but it was like a nice throwback to when he was 20 years old and running a market as his kid is these days like i mentioned earlier how the um uh, the carmen carberry incident has to be shown in every video we then get our probably the first uh retrospective on malcolm blight kicking the point <laughs> kicking the point uh from the goal square i think he might have put that through for a point he's run the wrong way it's unbelievable he thought that was the goals he really still thinks it now look it is unbelievable because I was done better myself. Which, for some bizarre reason, yeah. is with a yellow footy, but it's not a night match. Um, if, if someone can come with an explanation as to why a yellow footy was used that day, I'd love to know. Um, and then uh, in terms of other insane highlights from uh, 81, there's a couple of amazing Essendon ones, of course. There's that Tim Watson step uh, against Carlton, and didn't those Essendon fans love it in the? I think it was the Escort Cup uh, preseason. Yes, Escort Cup. Cup. Red Cup. shorts. Yep. Cup. Red shorts. Red shorts. It, it, in the red shorts, looking resplendent in the red shorts. And then, of course, there's Neil Danaher after the siren at Princes yeah. Park, um, which is again uh, another highlight. You time see many a time, and rightly well, so. It, it, the crowd of me has probably been the best man on the ground. And that's, that game is quite because, and that sort of tells the story of Essen in the eighties in a lot of ways because they, Sheedy takes over as coach and they lost their f- the first five or six games and and Sheedy was actually going to make a comeback to play because they were going badly so he was sort of tossing up whether he would pull on the boots and play as a captain coach, <laughs> but um, they they got things going and and became the glamour team of that that season and and for a lot of the eighties. Uh, uh, before he, before Sheedy could make a comeback to playing, the um the other bit that uh comes in with Blight as well, which we missed when we were talking about him before, is that that comparison to Ian Botham that they make when he kicks eleven goals against the Dogs, and they refer to Ian. I mean Ian Botham and uh, and Malcolm Blight together at last, isn't it? In the middle of 1981, you might recall our cricketers were having a torrid time in England at the hands of one Ian Botham. Fires it back. 
Well, back home, North fans were hailing Malcolm Blight as their Ian Botham after his decision to stand down as playing coach in round 16. But I like the way they used that winter. And even then, I mean, I think that, that as kids, you know about the 81 Ashes because it's one of the first mm. things you learn as a kid about cricket, but the two threads being tied together via Malcolm Blight. Yeah, the whole... It, it's probably one of the it's probably one of the earliest uh, occurrences of AFL VFL coverage trying to relate to world <laughs> sport. Uh, we saw plenty of it last year with the Last Dance, uh, amongst other things. You know, you know what they should do though. They should make a make a like a footy documentary like the Last Dance, don't you think? <laughs> oh. Do you want, maybe I could write a special interest article on that. That could go down really well. I, now, I did, talk, talking about the Botham reference, I spoke to Mick Lovett about that and he said, yeah, well, he's a big cricket fan. And he thought, oh, I just wanted to make some sort of some sort of crossover with cricket in the script. So, yeah, when um, when Botham stepped down and then, stepped down from captaincy, then, then came out and single-handedly won the Ashes, it made a, a reference point for, for Malcolm Blight uh, doing the similar, make, similar thing. Well, if we're going to make another link to cricket, uh, of course, 1981 saw the very first match played at the Gabba, uh, a pear-shaped mm. greyhound track Gabba, far different to the venue that hosted uh, last year's grand final. Um, the only real highlight uh, I, I can uh, recall uh, in the first ever Gabba match from Electrifying 80s is uh, Dipper getting knocked out by uh, Ron Andrews and uh, Peter Landy getting up about going, you're gone this time, Ronnie boy. <laughs> and he's reported, I would say. Ronnie Andrews dropped him like a sack of spuds. He's and him, uh, right. he's got him. You're gone this time, Ronnie boy. Yeah, there's definitely less biff than there is in the sensational 70s. But uh, but yeah, Dipper getting knocked out. And then I suppose a bit later on, it's it's the first seeds of the Jacko. Uh, mm. What would happen years later, uh, um, which we'll talk about when we get to 1985. But the Kelvin Moore handstands and just showing it is a complete nutcase. And at that point, it's all, it's all fun and games. <laughs> it's kind of less fun and games, I think, as we get deeper into it. Marks of the year... Uh you know, we love a good mark of the year. End of uh, end of each year, they have the great marks of the year montage. Um, obviously, electrifying eighties opted for marks rather than biffo montages <laughs> in the uh, in its seventies counterpart. Um, but the Peter Bazasto mark and goal of the year, it really was Bazasto's year um, for a great cameo uh, in the electrifying eighties. It's a pretty damn special. It seemed one. watching it, I, it 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 blew my mind that. He won Mark of the Year and Goal of the Year. Like, how can you do yeah, that? That's yeah. that's amazing. It, it, and the I, same game, isn't it? Well, it's it's not. It's against same the same. It's against the same team. It's against. It's both against Geelong. It's not in the same game. But the oh, mark right. the mark he takes at Princess Park, I, I think's got to be in the top top five or six ever. It's it's mm-hmm. and there's a great photo of it, which you know just shows how high up he was and. Um, yeah, Bazasto's one of those kind of enigmas who had a couple of fantastic years and then he went back to Perth and he then he was going to come back to Melbourne or you know you know he, he, he but those those two years are as influential as anyone if you watch the electrifying 80s. It truly was a year for transport uh, for players in 1981. Of course, you had Brian Peake getting the plane and the helicopter and then uh, well, Gary Sidebottom missed the bus to Waverley. So uh, transport was really important part of getting players to the ground. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, I don't know that full story, but it, it, then as I do now, I'm like, how did it happen? Yeah. How did they fail to bring one of their best players to Melbourne? <laughs> there's, there's, there's so I, I, don't, I don't think anyone has a definitive... Like, there's versions going around, but it still is vague. Like, oh, he hadn't being told that they were going to pick him up at Lara, but they were, were they really just trying to drop him and they didn't know? And 
I think it's going to be one of those mysteries. But for, from all from what is said, it, Geelong didn't actually they wanted him to play because the guy they had who came into the side was was eating a pie in the grandstand before the game. So <laughs> so whether they well, dro- wanted to drop him or not, someone hadn't dotted the i's and crossed the t's and. You know, to, to be fair, we had a pretty similar scene at the time yes. of record yesterday with the Adelaide Crows and the Medi sub. So, you know, it still happens at this and, day and, and age. The explanation for that's about as about as valid as the Geelong explanation, I think. <laughs> I think with the um with, with I mean, you get to the uh, end of the final series, I think with the eighty one grand final, uh, what is forgotten about it, and this kind of Gilly goes to your point about how thrifty they had to be with the writing, is that it's a great grand final. It's a cracking grand final, lady one. Uh, Collingwood are ahead much of the day. And Carlton hit the front, what, 10 minutes into the final term? Yeah. But I think just by virtue of the way that we experience the electrifying 80s and use it as a bit of a, uh, a bit of cliff notes for the decade, we just assume that Carlton pumps, um, pumped mm. Collingwood in, in, in 81. But it's far closer to 79, really, in, in yeah. terms of... Uh, in, in, yeah, we, we don't sort of see it that way, but it is closer to 79 because they, they, they did t- it took them until the last 10 minutes to kick clear. Absolutely. And it's also worth mentioning that 1981, you know, for the history, for the sake of the history, uh, was the first time we had the first tied Brownlow with, of course, uh, Quinlan-Barry Round winning together uh, after they got rid of that horrible countback system. So, Fuck the countback. Uh, they did a retrospective in 89. I know, At I least know. they gave them retrospective. <laughs> I know. That uh, yeah, terrible system. That make, makes no sense. Full credit, no sense. Man. <laughs> I just, just don't understand it. Oh boy, it wouldn't be the electrifying eighties if we didn't mention leaguetees.com.au. That's right, leaguetees.com.au, the official sponsor, apparel partner, and just official everything of the Australian Football Video Film Festival. Now, I think if you've been listening to this podcast since we started, uh, you would be fully aware of what League Tees is, but I'm happy to remind you. Now, League Tees, they craft small-run, retro, hand-printed footy gear that celebrates old suburban sporting culture. And what better fit with the Australian Football Video Film Festival than League Tees. Now, at League Tees, they reckon footy is best when it's a bit rough around the edges. That's why the League Tees footy fan gear is all about the game we grew up with, back when footy was for the footy fan, as they say. And uh, I have been wearing my sensational 70s Peter Landy T-shirt everywhere. Uh, It's been recognised in Brisbane, where I live. It was recognised when I went down to Melbourne. Uh, They are the must-have fashion item. You would be surprised the amount of people that look at that T-shirt and go... Now, that's fashion. Where do I get one? I, I go, well, you go to legtees.com.au. Where else would you go? So, oh, yeah. And then they're on their phones just purchasing more than one T-shirt from legtees.com.au. I've been told they've been flying off the shelves. Now, the Leg Tees footy shop is packed with footy tees, retro footy jumpers, hoodies, and all things retro footy. Even some ripper badges there. Uh, every week's retro round at legtees.com.au. There's footy of the AFL, VFL, VFA variety, interstate variety. Um, I think there's even a bit of NBL. And uh, if you're that way inclined, uh, there's even some of the Rugby League uh, options available at leaguetees.com.au. So what a perfect way to compliment your time listening to us talking about the electrifying 80s, then by making a purchase from leaguetees.com.au. 
league.com.au. Anthony, he would love to make you some of that fine footy fashion that he's got on offer. That's leagetees.com.au. That website, again, I'm going to say it because it needs to be put in your mind and you're going to be purchasing no matter what. In fact, if you're listening to this on your phone, just just get the browser out and uh, just punch in leagetees.com.au. League Tees, proud sponsors of the Australian Football Video Film Festival. Let's have a look at 1982, shall we? There's a feeling in the city, they're talking in the town. Today we're making history, and we won't let you down. We're Swans and we are Sydney, we'll set the town alight. Get ready for the liftoff, this bird is taking flight. Talking in the city, they're talking in the town. They're talking in Today the town. Today we're making history, Today we're making and we history. won't let you down. We won't yeah. let we're you the Swans down. and we are Sydney. We've set the town alight. We've set the town alight. Get ready alive. for the liftoff. This bird is taking flight. Taking flight. <laughs> for Up Sydney. there Sydney. for Sydney. In there, In there and fight. <laughs> Spirit of Kazali, the red and the white. Yes, it's the very first year of the Sydney Swans. Uh, South Melbourne have moved to Sydney. It's round one, 1982, and Mike Brady is on the middle of the SCG singing the Swans' new club song, Up There for Sydney, which led to Mike Brady probably sing, singing Up There for Everything for the next 40 years and just dining out on that song. I, I want him to, this grand final week, can he just get up there and instead of playing up there, because they play up, up there for Sydney instead? <laughs> he, he actually... It's funny you mentioned that, Gilly. He actually sang that at a Swans function a couple of years ago because they've posted on their socials. So um, if you're the electrifying 80s buff, I think I can consider myself a club song buff. Um, The Swans used up there... The Swans persisted with up there for Sydney for a very long time. So during the 90s, up until even the 90s, the Swans had a bit of a rule where they would run out to up there for Sydney and play Cheer Cheer at the end of the game. So they actually had two songs. Um, so there's a lot of Sydney Swan supporters that are actually quite very affectionate towards up there for Sydney. Um, and they've been playing, I think they've been playing it at half time at home games as well. So up there for Sydney gets the heartstrings of the uh, Sydney Swans faithful. Maybe not the South Melbourne faithful, but the Sydney people. Uh, they're very they're very fond of uh, up there for Sydney. Yeah, and, and speaking of the, the South and, Melbourne faithful, I, I mean... Again, I'm mindful of the the time that was allowed for this, but there's really no mention of eighty in eighty one. In fact, there's no mention in eighty one mm. of South Melbourne losing their club. And look, sure, it's a relocation, not a merger. It's not a not a not a um, losing the license or anything like that. But still, it feels like a big thing um, that at the start of eighty two, yes, they refer to the one hundred and six year history uh, of South Melbourne and the Swans moving uh, moving cities. And but yeah, I think that. Um, that bit's missing because I think it's important that, to know how the South Melbourne fans responded to losing their club. In essence, uh, I also what I do like on a lighter note though is that that it's referred to as a rugby stronghold. They don't distinguish between league and union when talking to the Victorian audience at that stage. It's like fuck it, rugby, that'll do. And so it was welcome to football Sydney style. They started life in 1874 as South Melbourne. 
but 106 years later, they were shipped from the Lake Oval to the Harbour City and Australia's rugby stronghold. I still take great pleasure in referring to the rugby league as rugby to... Now... Uh, in in 1989, we didn't know the difference. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, exa- I, I've, um, having lived in, having currently living in Brisbane, I do like to call it rugby around the locals and just see what response <laughs> exactly. you get. Uh, it goes down really well. Go- a <laughs> uh, bit of code, your home of code wars here at the Australian Football <laughs> Video Film Festival. Um, significant year. Some, we, we meet some significant characters uh, in 1982. So obviously the Swans are in Sydney. They're playing every second Sunday. They they are the most televised team in Australia. Everyone knows the Sydney Swans because obviously uh, the TV was very different back then. Uh, but we also meet the Cracker Brothers uh, for North Melbourne that year. And um, we pretty much get the Jacko show in full swing by 1982. One thing about the Jacko show that you start to see um, through the eighties, before it goes dark, I, I think is is that um, there's a lot of Sandy Roberts commentating on Jacko during during this era, and I, I think and, and it's not necessarily all on this on this video, but just generally in this period, if you if you look up Jacko highlights, which is not really whoa, it, it's 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 Sandy Roberts is like his hype man, like he. He talks about at one point, and there's the new trick. That's the one he's been promising for weeks. Like he was, he was in on the whole Jacko sort of <laughs> the, the Jacko experience, Sandy, um, and it fitted very well with Sandy at the time because I think early Sandy was the best Sandy. And then speaking of iconic commentary moments, we do get it in 1982. Uh, of course, when Lee Matthews hits the point post at Windy Hill. In it and broke the point post. Oh, talk about a he-man. How was that? He split it right down in half. A fantastic effort by Lee Matthews. This goes, oh, talk about a he-man. Yeah, yeah, that's it, isn't it? I mean, again, it's one of those moments that as a Hawthorne supporter, it's, uh, it's canon, uh, isn't it, to know about the day it... Windy Hill when he when he takes out the the point post and and so on, but uh, yeah, I mean the fact that there's not a lot of context around it, it's just that's all you need, isn't it? Him taking out the point post, everybody knows it. It's one of the most iconic moments in, in the history of the game. <laughs> and as you said before, Dylan, it, it, there's um, a, there's a whole bunch of these things that end up popping up in in uh, TV commercials years later, <laughs> like that one. Mm, mm. Yep that that's another stock standard. Uh, that that's. That's that's an absolute must, Lee Matthews, uh, uh, hitting the po- t- uh, taking out the point post there. Um, another thing that uh, 1982 uh, brings uh, in in the year, and it's it's a pretty significant year, obviously with uh, the Swans relocating to Sydney. So they actually win a premiership that year because yeah. uh, the the relocated Sydney Swans won the night series, and uh, a man who features. Prominently in the next year, uh, Silvio Fascini dominates for the Swans in the '82 uh, Escort. Is it still Escort Cup in '82, or is it's, it Sterling Cup? Which cigarettes yeah, brand is sponsoring I, them by now? This probably I was. It might have been the Sterling Cup by that point. It was. It bounced around. Sterling a bit, Cup. But yeah. It it actually just showed how. I mean, this is. It wasn't a preseason competition. If you didn't know, it was during the year, um, and it was it was pretty important because. Again, this is this is a time before there were lo- was live broadcasts of regular home and away matches. So the the Escort Cup or the Sterling Cup or what became the Fosters Cup later on, that was that was your live broadcast TV. So it, it was actually a pretty big deal to win it because you know 
not only do you win something, and that was fantastic to win a grand final of sorts, but it was also their sort of television and sponsor exposure, even if it was a bit more primitive back then. And um, the Swans winning winning the 1982 night grand final seems like such a big deal at the time. Probably doesn't mean a hell of a lot now when we look back on it, but um, they certainly sell. I think they would have celebrated on a Tuesday night. Yeah, Barry around having the uh, you was the smile, the smile, the size of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Um, you, you've done a bit of uh, you, you flexed a couple of times, Gilly. My turn. Um, I was talking to Dermot about this recently. <laughs> Dermot, uh, we, who, who, we, Dermot, who? Uh, the kid. Uh, Adam? The kid. You'll hear about him in a bit at the end, at the end of this oh, season. And, oh, and he okay. said that. Um, oh, and he, and he, yeah. he said that um, the reason why these night comps meant an awful lot to them was that to the club especially, was the prize money was how they um, – was, was, was a huge part of how they stayed in the black. They were dealing with such fine margins, these Melbourne clubs at the time. And that's why Hawthorne, despite the fact that, you know, from a football perspective, their, their main objective was to win in September, they used to throw the kitchen sink at the midweek competition, knowing that the prize money was enough to – not go back to the players, by the way. He said that they were quite frugal and quite thrifty with the way they distributed the money back to the playing group. It was more about giving the club that – stability off the field so they could continue to return a profit year on year. So, yeah, there was this off-field onus um, and and in addition to um, additional uh, exposure for sponsors and so on that you pointed out, Dylan. Uh, he doesn't call himself Five Day, Five Night for no reason there, Adam. That's why it matters. That's why it matters <laughs> well, it there. Does. It does. Um, and, of course, Five Day, Five Day, Five Night, Dermot does make his debut. We talk about significant characters coming uh, across in 1982 of Electrifying 80s where... Uh, the young Dermy at uh, number 47 kicks five on debut in the uh, 1982 semi final. And we see plenty of Dermot uh, throughout the rest of the electrifying 80s. And yeah, the 1982 grand final. Um, Carlton beats Richmond. And now it is a family show, electrifying 80s, right? A good, wholesome 7 30 Saturday night G rated program. So. No full frontal female nudity from Helen D'Amico, but violence, that's all right, because Richmond goes the biff uh, in the 82 grand final. Violence, yes. Nudity, no. Richmond, under Francis Burke, had defeated Carlton in the second semi-final. And although tempers were a little frayed, the Blues settled down and were looking good. Yeah, the, uh, I was surprised that we didn't see the streaker, given it was such a big part of the 82 story. Uh, and, yeah, and Dermy's debut, I know you did a good job um, of going through this with Tony Wilson on an earlier edition of the show, which I really enjoyed. Um, but he was he was so ready for VFL football as a teenager, in a way that not many players are. He was so athletic, uh, and a couple of those goals, it doesn't... Even the even the highlight package in Electrifying 80s doesn't do justice to how well Bruton played that day on debut. Okay. In the same game where, where Malcolm Blight slots his 100th as well in that in that final uh, they play against Hawthorne. So a nice sort of, I like that kind of the tides of time thing where, where Bruton's starting off and Blight's sort of coming towards the end, but they did share the field on that significant day in both their careers. Now, we mentioned earlier on the introduction to the program that we have uncovered footage from the original television broadcast or questionable original television broadcast in the case of Gilly of Electrifying 80s. Now, of course, the original broadcast aired over two weeks on Channel 7 after the 1989 semi-final and preliminary final. Uh, And I think it's fair to say many people listening uh, recall the VHS version, the two-hour version. But 
It didn't include these interviews. So Sandy Roberts only appears at the introduction of Electrifying 80s on the video, but on the broadcast, he actually partakes in two interviews. Uh, One is with Kevin Bartlett, and the other is with uh, John Kennedy in two halves of the Electrifying 80s. So this is rare footage. This is like rare, unseen DVD extra footage. But right now, as a little special extra treat... Here is the Kevin Bartlett, Sandy Roberts interview that aired in the original broadcast of Electrifying 80s. The stars of the 80s joins us now. He is now the Richmond coach, but in 1980 we saw those gold flowing locks running down the forward line, <laughs> kicking goals. Kevin Bartlett, welcome. Thanks, Sandy. Great to be here. Where are the locks? They're gone. <laughs> but uh, I just thought I'd move with the times because most kids have short haircuts these days, so I'm just going with the times. Kevin, we look back to those... Tremendous highlights from 1980, 81 and 82 we've had a look at so far. We're now moving into the 90s. How do you think the game's changed over that decade? Well, I think uh, the beginning of the 80s, of course, uh, Richmond won the premiership and uh, I think there was uh, a lot of rebound football. Uh, tremendous amount of skill came into the game, I think, particularly in the 80s. And I think that uh, the game is just progressing from that. I think a lot of the players have become bigger, more athletic. Uh, there's a lot more emphasis now on... Uh, players doing uh, weights and building up and uh, you know that the skill level uh, there's a lot of emphasis now put on the skill level and we saw Hawthorne today for instance you know with their great skill level winning today so I think the change has been just particularly in the areas of skill and the physical attributes of players. Not from a coach's point of view but from a spectator's point of view uh, despite the changes is the game heading in the right direction? Well I I think it is Uh, I mean Things are changing. A lot of people say that the uh, the collisions are not there like they were, say, in the 60s. But that's simply because the boys move so quickly now and uh, players, you know, are capable of running from full back down, kicking a goal, things that were unheard of, you know, in the 60s and maybe even in the, the very, very early 70s. So I think it's a pretty exciting brand of football in a different sort of way. You have featured in Holden's Greatest 25 since 1965. We're counting down to number one. Who's the greatest player that you ever played against? Against or with? Either. Either. Well, naturally enough, uh, I look at a number of Richmond players because we played in uh, a golden era with, uh, you know, Ian Stewart's and uh, Francis Burke's, uh, Billy Barrett's, Kevin Sheedy's, uh, all great players. But uh, I would have to say that uh, Royce Hart uh, was just an exceptional player, played at centre-half forward. He wasn't over big Royce, but he was a great mark. He was fantastic on the ground, great recovery skills and a magnificent kick and... uh, you know, it would be very difficult for me to go past Royce. Briefly in closing, optimistic about the future for the Tigers next year? Well, I'm optimistic about the future, uh, not only next year, but uh, in the years beyond that. Uh, we're confident that uh, we've got a, a nucleus of players and a plan to do well. Kevin, thank you for joining us tonight. So, so what did we learn from KB there? Uh, lots of rebound footy, uh, more athletic players, the skill level's better. Uh, and uh, Richmond have a bright future heading into the 90s as uh, Tigers coach. Yeah, yeah well, yeah, he was right on most of those those things. There was, there was one thing he got a little bit wrong, um, sadly, for, for KB. But, um, yeah, it did get more athletic. Just Richmond didn't get more athletic in his time as coach. And, and this just proceeds, Dylan, and you'll know this for sure, that the the time when KB would always wear a hat. So he, he's even asked about having no hair at this point in the talks about having gotten with the times by getting rid of what was left of it. But there's that period in, in the early 90s uh, where, where KB always wears a hat, certainly when working for Channel 7. 
uh, before he kind of acknowledges what's going on up there. Probably the hat you're wearing. Right yeah. right now. Is that a KB right signed now. hat that you're willing, willing to do? <laughs> it's kind of it's it's so ridiculous now when you look back at those '90s things when he's on TV wearing a hat. Like everyone's in suits and he's wearing a, wearing a hat. <laughs> <laughs> but as as you mentioned, yeah. Dylan, I'm I'm still flummoxed by these interviews because I'm sure I didn't see them on the night. So who knows? Who knows the explanation for this? Well, it's an yes. uncovered discovery that we've made for this podcast and we've given them a new <laughs> lease of life. Uh, let's have a look at 1983. It was football in March as the Blues unfurled their 1982 flag to start one of the most controversial seasons in VFL history. Flag is unfurled. Now... We've done 1983 before, Gilly. Uh, if you do want to listen back, uh, that was the season that was 1983 uh, with myself and Shannon Gill, Australian Football Video Festival's uh, own uh, Shannon Gill these days. Uh, I think that's more of a celebration of Peter Landy, yeah, that episode, look, and uh, look, some of look, his excellent poses on the, the camera there. <laughs> One thing about Billy Schwartz, apart from his commentary, it's a Landy-free zone, so we don't actually see Peter Landy in the electrifying 80s. Some may say that's a great thing. Uh, we saw enough of him in the 83. That was the season that was, didn't we? Interesting going back recently and looking at the number of grand finals that Peter Landy called through this stretch of time, especially with Lou Richards. It's all pre-summarizer. So I went back and tracked uh, every television grand final and who called them, who the commentary team were. And it's interesting to see that there was a period in time where we're having a special comments man, so to speak, was was uh, de rigueur. Not least 1971, by the way, where there was six commentators, including Ron Barassi, and they all took a turn calling, and they all took a turn being special comments. Quarter on quarter, it was changing around. But no, yeah, this is the era, isn't it, where it's, it's Richards and Landy, and there is no third voice. I do like, uh, we, we captured this in that was the season that was, but um, when they do reveal, uh, unveil Carlton's premiership flag at the start of uh, 1983... Uh, the most uh, controversial in league's daughter. Um, we did ca- touch on this in the previous episode we did, but it was actually the president's daughter that got to unveil the flag. It was a real Sophie Gosper area. <laughs> yeah, not not quite as well thought out as, you know, like a, this this year with, with the way Richmond did it with certain people that represented certain eras of the club that was really well thought out in 1983. Um, who's going to do it? Oh, I'll get my daughter to do it. No connection whatsoever beyond that the, she's the daughter of the president. And then you mentioned those packed suburban ground scenes that we see. Mm. Um, 83 starts off with a bang because you've got the iconic umpire mm. that is Glenn James uh, bouncing the ball at Princess Park, a packed Princess Park so in a grand good. final rematch between... Uh, uh, and he does Carlton the wave. He, you know, he, he, yes. He's like, yes. yes. Takes the ball, holds it aloft, so the siren goes, and then he waves. How good's that? I don't, I don't know that why. Was a, I don't know. I, I feel like I feel like that was a bit of a thing at the start of games for a time, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, where or, there was like or, a there was a formal ceremonial sort of. This is the first bounce. It's <laughs> the first bounce. Whether it was just him, just because it was round one, but it's fantastic. I love it. <laughs> in in terms of eighty three being controversial, it's all about the player movement, which is just all over the shop. Because of course, you get Peter Moore at Melbourne. Um, the Pies Interstate Brigade, the new Magpies, Randall McDonald, the new Collingwood president, Collingwood spending money, Melbourne spending money, just spending money like there's no tomorrow. Um, and then you've got the Silvio Faschini case, which, as Warwood says, open, open slather. slather. St Kilda sent shockwaves through the competition when it obtained a clearance for former Swans rover Silvio Faschini via the courts on the eve of round four. 
but no one was quite prepared for the year's biggest sensation. The Saints played X1 Paul Morewood without a clearance against Geelong. Start and slow there now, so you can go one club one week and another the next week if not on contract, so <laughs> make, make some brass out of that one. It feels like the sort of thing, Killy, which would have been appropriately billed as a, a Sunday night telly movie at the time, the Silvio Vachini, or even the Paul Morewood debacle the, the following week or whatever it was, or the same weekend maybe when he when he plays without a clearance. It was Wild West stuff. Uh, and it... it, it, it it's not too much of a stretch to say it actually changed footy. It's probably the most sort mm. of political thing that the electrifying 80s touches on, and it does change footy forever. The, the, basically, St Kilda challenged the the rules in court that you can't just transfer to another club. It was one of these untouchable things that no one challenged the rules in court because they knew they were probably unenforceable. St Kilda said, no, we're going to challenge it, as in Fashini wanted to move to St Kilda. It happens. The courts rule that no, the VFL has got no right to restrain trade in the way it was doing, um, and it forced it forced them to rewrite the whole rules because, as in the in the in the in the video, you, any player, if you weren't on a contract, could go to another club, which was not the way they wanted to do it, and you know that that leads to um, the VFL going to the USA and, and trying to work out what they're going to hell, what the hell they're going to do with the rules. And that leads to salary cap and drafting, which completely changes the way mm. footy's played and, and administered. Um, and it's still basically, I mean, yeah, if things have, the rules have changed along the way, but those are the, the principal sort of pillars that the whole league and the equality of the league is based on was, is um, drafting rather than players being zoned to where they lived. And uh, and salary cap just trying to keep a lid on payments, which you know, all things considered, it's actually worked pretty well. You know, when you when you think about the the spread of premierships, apart from a couple of clubs that haven't won one, I'll, I'll, I won't mention one of them. Um, but you know, that that is a moment that changes the course of of footy as we know it. A thing to really bring up in 1983, and it's a minor thing, but it's a great thing. Um, we mentioned Peter Moore at Melbourne and then uh, KB's 400th game at the Tigers. Now, what I want to bring up about that factor is that resulted in two of the greatest banners ever created. Because uh, I think um, Peter Moore uh, at Melbourne, the Collingwood cheer squad, put up a banner when they played the D's called More <laughs> Filth. <laughs> and then of course there's that vision now KB becomes Kevin Bartlett uh, becomes the first man to ever play 400 games and the Richmond cheer squad's greatest banner of all time is without doubt uh, Kevin Bartlett's 400th banner he runs out with the with the comb over he's got the lace up jumper on and then he trips over <laughs> Those, the, the cheer squad is Kevin Bartlett comes onto the ground, 400th game of VFL football. And so it was game number 400, and another milestone for Richmond legend Kevin Bartlett, when he led the Tigers out against Collingwood in round 19. The first player to reach 400 games. What tribute did Kevin Bartlett have than to see a crowd like that? It's, it's, it's about, it seems as, as if it's as high as the Southern Stand, that, that banner. <laughs> it just goes forever. Well, they really made a point of it, didn't they? And this come, mm. toward, I mean, this is more in 1990, but when Bartlett played his 400th and then when Tuck played his 400th, 
the Hawthorne cheer squad wanted to go even bigger, uh, and as they did again when he when he broke KB's record uh, four weeks later. So there was the the two milestone banners for Tuck, which are the biggest I've ever seen. I think um, I think uh, by then the AFL sort of uh, regulated banners, and that's why we don't see the monstrosity, the absolute monster uh, crepe paper efforts or uh, political slogans. I think I'm pretty sure the political banners ended uh, when Fitzroy cheer squad just went all out in their final weeks with their famous. Uh, what was it? Seduced by North, raped by Brisbane and by the AFL uh, banner uh, against Collingwood in 1996. And then the AFL, apparently you now have to get approval from the AFL as to uh, what you're doing. Um, another thing from 83, Shannon, you mentioned early Sandy is the best Sandy. And, uh, well, super boot, Bernie oh. Quinlan. Kicks the century. Quinlan's Detroit. trademark, the long drop punt, sailed through to give him a century. And the Lions second place on the league ladder. Oh, it's there! If there's a footy sort of era that I'd love to just go back to, I'd love to go back to the Junction Oval to watch Fitzroy when they were good, like and mm. Bernie Quinlan's mm. kicking goals. He kicks these drop punts from from the centre square regularly, and yeah, Sandy Sandy sort of commentating his hundredth goal, and you know it's long, it's there, it's one hundred, and um, you know celebrations, people run on that. That looks like a lot of fun, sort of Fitzroy's, you know, the, the last moments of Fitzroy being a, a really good side to watch. And, um, yeah, it, it, it plays well at different parts during the electrifying 80s. Yeah, I think that's right. In 83, especially with Fitzroy, like, as a Hawthorne supporter, we've been really privileged to see all these flags and you never want to take that for granted as a, as a football fan because, you know, you can go from being a powerhouse like Melbourne were for so long and have these droughts but the the one year that if things could, if I could give away one flag this is a horrible way of putting it if there's mm-hmm. one premiership that could have gone the other way it's 83 <laughs> I think because 83 is the one where I mean Fitzroy in that qualifying final which isn't featured uh, on the electrifying 80s of course but uh, where Michael Tuck wins it single-handedly in the final term and Fitzroy just fall away at the very death because um, they, they could you know I think as Fitzroy supporters often say that's the year they could have and should have won it yeah they they you know they they almost get over the line against against Hawthorne. Um, they got Bernie Quinlan at the peak of his powers. They'd beaten North Melbourne by 150 points in a game earlier in the year, and that's who they would have played in the second semi. Now you think you'd go in pretty confident, mm-hmm. having knocked over a team by 20 plus goals, um, and then you're in a grand final, and um, everyone else has to has to get there. So yeah, it's uh, it's a what might have been. Speaking of grand finals, Adam, you've got a fair few of these coming up in the electrifying 80s, uh, if you don't mind. But uh, <laughs> just just give us your take of how electrifying 80s covers the uh, 83 grand well, final. Well, I think that... that yeah, I, I think that they, they, they capture it correctly to the extent that um, Hawthorne supporters do view it through the prism of Colin Robertson. Um, and both the incident with Tim Watson at the start and then... Uh, and then playing so well after that because it's one of those Norm Smith winners who doesn't have a huge career. I mean, he doesn't play in any of the subsequent Hawthorne premierships later in the 80s, for example. So I think that's right to, to focus primarily on him. And that it's just this team that's coming through, isn't it? The way they, they sum it up with this group of players who 
um, are coming through. And, and to be fair, they need to have in there um, the Gary Bacanara moment too, because that's that's in the first couple of moments of the game when and uh, when he uh, when he hits the deck, tries to take his kick, goes down again, and of course it's the catalyst for the uh, could have been champions and the reconstruction song, which um, even to this day I sometimes pop on. Over and over and over again, my friend. I'm going to need a complete knee reconstruction. I'm going to need a complete knee reconstruction. Think of all the knees. <laughs> I don't know why, but the, the, all the highlights of uh, the knee reconstruction song on YouTube are of, of poor old Bucky. Um, of course, he he recovers and plays in a, in, in, a, in a series of premierships through, through the decade, plays in four all up. Um, but yeah, I think that this is emblematic of the way a lot of grand finals are in electrifying 80s. You get one or two talking points and you move on. It's not given more weight than any other part of the season. Um, and it kind of goes back to what Gilly said at the start about editing. It's just one game. They, they try not to over-index or over-emphasize any one particular moment in the decade. But it's lovely to have at the very end uh, Richard Loveridge uh, that um, error, which gives him the chance to uh, um, to, uh, to to power Hawthorne to an 83-point win, and that being acknowledged as the record at the time. But the Hawks were not finished. Loveridge accepted a gift from Simon Madden to add further insult to injury. And there we see Loveridge firing the goals. And I think he's put it through. He has. Yes, the goals. The final siren rang. An 83-point victory for the Hawks, giving Alan Jeans his second premiership and Hawthorne its fifth. And and Essendon supporters leaving early. It's, it's not, it's not oh, isn't either. that beautiful? Sorry, I missed that bit, isn't it? The, the Essendon supporters streaming out um, early. Yeah, that's... Uh, I know that that's replicated two years later with Hawthorne supporters leaving early in 1985, but uh, you take your wins when you get them. <laughs> Let's have a look at 1984. Another season of off-field changes started on a bright note for Carlton and its West Australian full forward, Warren Ralph. Well, it's a real feel-good recruitment story to kick off 1984. The poor, struggling Carlton Football Club uh, gives someone from Western Australia a chance in the VFL. It's just a real feel-good story there. Yeah, well, as you said, um, Carlton had Bendigo as a recruiting zone and Western Australia. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then South Australia later on and then South Australia they, they actually swapped Western Australia for South Australia a couple of years later too yeah yes so we see the highlights from uh, Warren Ralph as they uh, thrash North Melbourne by 147 points and we get some really great highlights to kick off um, 84 um, one that really stands out is of course the little shootout uh, I mean in the 90s a decade that delivered we often talk about the shootout between uh, Salmon and Ablett in uh, 1993 the uh, the greatest season that, that was uh, if you don't mind there you go there's a plug for you fellas um, but uh, we see a shootout between Paul Salmon and a young 18 year old in Long sleeves by the name of Tony Lockett in an Essendon St Kilda game but it's actually Paul Salmon who's the darling full forward at the time and I think there's comparisons Salmon almost overnight became the darling of the Essendon horde and he could do no wrong suddenly there were comparisons with John Coleman as he marked and kicked everything Played in '83, but um, was sort of a, a, a obviously a well thought of junior, and he comes into a team that's that's played in a grand final year before, and he'd he'd kick 63 goal he kicked 63 goals in the, in the first 13 games, so he's he's well on track for 100, given that this team was 
you know, going to go on and play in a grand final. Um, and and it also someone that it, like he's two hundred and six centimeters at the time. Um, you had I think Paul Salmon and, and Justin Madden at two hundred and six centimeters were the tallest players to ever play league footy, and you had this Salmon guy who wasn't playing in the ruck. He was playing at full forward and kicking, you know, playing like a six foot rather than a six foot seven, a six foot eight guy. It, it was it was sort of footy evolution happening before your your eyes. The way it was sort of characterized. So, you know, there was this thing that this this guy could be the greatest thing we've ever seen. Um, I think there was probably thoughts at that time, but uh, yeah, it, it, it starts very well, but he, he unfortunately hurts himself later in the season and doesn't need. Yeah, he, he makes it look so easy. I think it's that almost like the sticking the arms up, and, and there was no, there was nothing these defenders could do. Uh, and it's yeah, they 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 always talk about that salmon '84 season as the 18 year old and. Well, I suppose he's 19 by that point, isn't he, with Lockett, um, 18 and, and, and the two of them starting off. But with Salmon, just this idea that he completely revolutionised the position. And it took a long time until he stopped playing full forward. I mean, he's still the Essendon full forward in the 19, 1993 grand final. I mean, it takes until the mid-90s um, when he becomes a ruckman, gets traded and, and plays in the ruck for Hawthorne for five or six years. But yeah, when you think about it, like it, it's amazing to consider that for the longest time, he wasn't playing in the position which you would think his body is suited to because he was such a mismatch for, for teams that had never seen anything like this before. And, and in some ways, from that, that start, I mean, he, he played a lot of good footy at, at full forward, mind you, but he, he never, you know, he never w- was that 100 goal kicker consistent that he was in that yep. first year. And, and I think in a lot of ways, that kind of, that that could make him a bit of a maligned player. And he certainly was a maligned player at the end of Essendon before he went to Hawthorne. Sure. And um, partly they because... Fucking boot him, they boot him off the field. They boot him off the field, in yes. In 95 at VFL Park. Yeah, so it's, it was it was almost like he set the bar so high so young that um, he could, you know, as I said, he still played some bloody good footy and was full forward in two premierships. So... You know, yeah. not not a and and great did some great stuff, but was never as brilliant and and as consistent as he was looking at that point. So there was always this thing that he had more in him, um, unfortunately. But you know, he did. His it seemed nothing was going to stop Salmon and the Bombers that year, and everything was going along nicely for the young giant until a collision with Collingwood's Jeff Raines buckled his knee and ended prematurely what could have been a 100 goal season. Now Salmon is down at centre field. Salmon Daly hasn't moved from for a while, but he's really stunned down there. Imai was never going to be as athletic as he was, as he was, but certainly that was part of the Salmon story that a lot of people probably unfairly thought he had more in him because they'd seen this at an early early stage. Also early in the season, uh, I watched back the, the shot after the siren on Anzac Day from Ralph to, to, to potentially win it against Collingwood. That's the Collingwood Carlton clash. Carlton Collingwood clash, Fairfield Park. He kicked yeah. it, didn't he? Yeah. That's a free kick. It might go there to uh, to Ralph. Oh! Got him on the side of the head. So this could level the scores. It could be a drawn game. What time to give a decision? Oh, and all the players there. Look at the Collingwood players in the goal square trying to put him off. Can he kick this one to make it a draw? Look at all those Collingwood players. He fires. He's got it, I think. He's missed it. And when the Carlton spearhead missed his shot. 
Magpie supporters believe justice had been done. Absolutely, he did. He kicked it. Oh, it's, a, it's, it's just one of those ones. I mean, I, I, could, I could watch it a thousand times and I'll come. He kicked it. And, and the television camera, as it was on the half-forward <laughs> flank, because the television camera was never on the wing there. It was always yeah. on the half-forward flank, police road, end of the ground. And yeah. so you get a perfect view right over where Ralph's kicking it from after. He, 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 he threads it. Yeah, and, and they they pause the as the ball is actually travelling through. They sort of slow-mo <laughs> or pause the ball, and it's clearly through the goals. And, yeah, um, just one of those classic sort of 70s and 80s things where stuff happened and it... I think Collingwood fans believe that's a one-up yeah. from a few years <laughs> yeah. back in a grand final kind of result there, um, uh, to be fair. Um we also see some very um, insane bonkers ending to games. That Footscray Collingwood oh, yeah. game uh, with, you know, Gubby uh, Allen. Allen playing it safe and uh, yeah, Jim Edmund just uh, gives him a reminder. That's also another, like, stock standard footy vision um, that gets gets rolled out a fair bit. The Magpies and defender Graham Allen decided to play safe, a decision which had disastrous consequences. Simon Beasley accepted the pass. Jim Edmund reminded Allen of his costly mistake, and the Bulldogs went on to win by five points. The chance of being a hero for Footscray. And uh, Collingwood may have thrown this one away as Beasley now from directly in front. Um, but in terms of rare vision, um, we see a, a, a new Hawthorne recruit by the name, a, a man that was playing at, uh, that used to play for Hawthorne, made his debut for Geelong, and um, well, Started off by doing uh, da- damage to what would be his bunnies for his um, entire career uh, against Richmond. And a, a forward line of um, Gary Ablett Sr. and Mark Jacko Jackson. What a combination. Yeah, and Ablett initially, and Ablett getting there and, and kicking a torp from 70. Brilliant on his left foot. I mean, even then, he, he looks old. But uh, he, he, it's almost like a precursor for what's to come by the end of the decade to, to see that he could already do this after having, of course, quit the game for... Well, not quit the game, but having quit league footy for... A couple of years between times. To to be a fly on the wall that season eighty four at Geelong, you had Greg Williams, Gary Ablett, and Mark Jackson all play their first games for Geelong in round one of that season. <laughs> it's just the mind boggles how that would have worked. Wow! What <laughs> one? How good it would have been to watch that season. Um, and just yeah, what a three three guys to have come into a team um, for for, uh, for their first games for the club. Amazing stuff. Mm. If we can be serious for a moment, and I, I do mean serious, um, I think the... And we, and we touched on this in Sensational 70s with Ash Brown. Um, the context of Robbie Muir and the vision of Robbie mm. Muir. Um, of course, when he has that uh, confrontation with umpire Kevin Smith... Um, Again, in the sort of sh- short, sharp editor, the short, short, sharp uh, recap that Electrifying Eighties has, it just goes. Muir thought he was hard done by and took out his frustrations in no uncertain manner. This clash with former Saint Val Perovic earned Muir a twelve-week suspension, but the immediate sequel saw umpire Kevin Smith struggling to come to grips with the fiery wingman. Muir apparently thought he was hard done by and took out his frustrations in no uncertain manner. And then, of course, um, probably later on in last year, there was that uh, Quill Award uh, 
article by friend of the program, Russell Jackson, about Robbie Muir's life and how he was perceived in his football career. How do you think vision like that uh, played a role in how Robbie was perceived? Um, well, you, well, it it did it did shape perception of who the guy was because we all would have seen it and was my first exposure to to who Robbie Muir was, and you saw this guy who who it wasn't even the 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 hit that he does in that vision that's sort of stock standard for the time but it's the the reaction of of him throwing the mouth guard and and sort of all these histrionics around with the umpire and uh so the 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 perception is he was this crazy guy who was just out of control and did did stupid things now of course we didn't know the context and we didn't know what was sitting behind all of that um and look, Muir had, you know, hadn't hadn't actually played for St Kilda for three or four years at that point. So he'd sort of come back to St Kilda. But prior to that, um, you know, in the seventies, there'd been a he he was a regular sort of um, uh, person in 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 the Biff section of the seventies, as we saw. But yeah, it it, it doesn't. Mm. It, well, to be fair, nobody addressed what was going on behind the scenes really at that point. Um, it, it seems that there's, there's, there was probably a few journalists that were actually that actually knew what was going on or could could sympathise with um, the 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 race elements that that Robbie dealt with. Um, we're not even talking about the other elements in his life that that Russell sort of spoke about so eloquently. Um, but it. it yeah, it characterised him as a bit of a sideshow, really. That's what it did, and it's, it's, that's sad to look back on like that. Yeah, and I think that in, in terms of where it's positioned in the, in the video, when you're looking at the, the, full, um, the full decade version, not the two-parter, that it's like within minutes of the John Burke incident at Lakeside Oval, and it kind of, give, it kind of groups the two of them together as these two wild men who, you know, left unrestrained, who knows what they would have done to the umpire, and, you know... All, it, yeah, it's a it's a function of the editing that we've talked about a number of times that there was no real room for nuance, I suppose. And uh, and as Russell, I mean, it, there's there's almost no point trying to um, surmise what Russell wrote so brilliantly. Everyone should read that piece. It's uh, it's so no. important. But the the systemic racism uh, that was clearly at play uh, in the case of Muir and, and a number of players who were who were in the VFL at that time, uh, it, it's irrefutable. So, um, and yes, I, I think it's unfortunate that almost unwittingly uh, this tape, because yes, he isn't a major part of it uh, as an on-field player. In fact, he's only mentioned in the entire show, right? So we only get one snapshot. And if your only exposure to Robbie Muir is this, and it's coming immediately before John Burke belts the umpire and, and everything else that goes hand in hand with that, you're going to be left with that mm. impression of, of who he was as a player, which is unfortunate. And in terms of this program, of course, we uh, did an episode on Biff's Bumps and Brawlers, which was probably recorded uh, maybe May, June last year. So that was uh, recorded and uh, released before Russell's article. I assume Russell was probably in the process of uh, writing it. And of course, we, we do mention Robbie Muir in a very, in the, not in, a, in the light of him being Mad Dog Muir and all, you know, TV ringside and, you know, was a, was a regular feature of Biff's Bumps and Brawlers, but... You know, I think on reflection, this program probably would have talked about it differently had we known his story properly. So we, I think uh, in the long run, we're better off for articles like what Russell has been doing recently 
um, so we can look back on history and acknowledge where we've been. Is, is I think that's a fair assumption. Yeah, yeah, and 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 even the almost offhanded way that the Cracker Brothers have spoken about leaning on, I suppose, sort of tropes that became just part of the normal vernacular. I'm not sort of identifying any person as being culpable individually, but um, yeah, the, the sort of sense that well, because they are. Aboriginal, they have sort of special magical powers or, or something like that, which I think it's taken a long time for us to, to lose that from the, the conversation around Indigenous players. But it was certainly um, just accepted uh, wrongly uh, as being part of the way that footy was covered, uh, certainly when this was being put together. Yeah, and it, it, in the 80s or even 89, as we get to here, we're, we're, we're still four years away from the Nicky Wimmer moment. And we're still, yep. um, we're still six years away. You know, the Nicky Winwell moment is is the iconic moment, but it, as much the the Monkhurst and, and Michael Long moment when something happens and there's some consequence for something happening um, in '95. So we're still a, we're still a long way away from even, you know, recognising it as a as an issue. Um, you know, we're still we're still a long way from addressing it, really. But 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 um, yeah, it. It's not. It's not a knock on the on the video at all. It's just that that's. It just wasn't part of what we what we, what most football average football fans understood at the time. And and um, you know, there's plenty of wrong in that. So from the serious to the to the football and the fun part of electrifying eighties. We see another time. Bernie Quinlan was a popular man with Fitzroy's faithful after he registered 100 goals for the second successive year, doing it in style against St Kilda at the Junction Oval. In now, the kids around the boundary line. Quinlan lines up. Goal number 100 to Bernie Quinlan. His teammates rush in to celebrate. A great moment with him. And second season in a row, he's done that. The second season in a row. He's guided Fitzroy into the finals. Superboot kicks the ton for the second year running in the last game. Can you believe it? The final game at the Junction Oval. Fittingly against St Kilda. And uh, we get a rare glimpse of the great Stephen Phillips commentary. Yeah, interesting. I'm I'm just thinking about it. They had their regular kind of combinations. You had, by that point, it was, was Peter... Peter Landy and Lou Richards doing the game, the match of the day. Generally, you had um, Bob Skilton and Sandy Roberts doing the second, the second game. Then you had Peter McKenna and uh, Jack Edwards doing the third game, pretty much. But I, I wouldn't be surprised. I think occasionally you had other voices coming in. Wouldn't be surprised whether they just sent the one camera along to this game because Bernie yeah. was going to kick his hundredth, and it wasn't classified as one of the games of the, you know, matches of the, of the round. Um, and they just went. We're sending the one camera, but you know, you're just there to make sure you get Bernie's hundred if he kicks it. So Stephen Phillips is there just commentating on his own, and his voice is almost gone when he calls it. So maybe he just sat there on his own commentating all day in the hope Bernie would kick the ton, and he got it. That's certainly how it strikes me. It doesn't look mm. like a televised game in terms of the production yeah. values. It feels like they they might have even dubbed the it, commentary yeah. over the top subsequently. Possibly they might have had a, yeah. a camera it, there it, for news. Yeah. It's kind of like the equivalent of watching a live stream on YouTube of the reserves match these days when uh, someone from the club media department yeah. is just calling it <laughs> off the back of the camera and it's one camera. That, that, that's probably the modern way of putting it. Um, 84 grand final, Hawks aim for back-to-back, but uh, they get off to a flying start. You were right at, oh, come on, you had a Do good Do you want to leave the room okay. now or not? Um, <laughs> but Vanderhaar knocked off. There's a grand hour for Weston. He's put it through for a goal. 
What a match winner this guy's been at centre half forward. This premiership was Sheedy's premiership with these tremendous moves. Paul Weston and Tim Watson finally sealed the game for Essendon, giving the Bombers their first flag since 1965. Uh, it, it was uh, as as the great Luke Richards, Lou Richards said, this premiership was Sheedy's premierships with these tremendous. Yeah, groups. the baby bombers. Uh, I mean, we, we we arrived there via lethal kicking six against Carlton. Yeah, in the first final with sort of blokes dropping everywhere, and we we missed the eighty four second semi altogether, which many close watchers of the game and the club. Uh, and this was that was of course a televised game, and it's been played on Fox Footy a million times over the years. Argue is one of the greatest games ever played. Hawthorne come out, I think nine points on top. Dipper, um, best of field. Uh, so we kind of skip over that and get straight to the grand final. So I think it misses the fact that Hawthorne arrive and and they are pretty bruised and battered after the two finals they'd played uh, in September to that point, and thus it, it emphasised the uh, the youth and fitness that they had, sort of the Billy Duckworth. Watson Weston uh, trio in that last quarter, those three goals after Baker, of course, as well, and and then that um, oh, they're killing them uh, in, in the uh, in in the, in that final bit of commentary, which they which they appropriately used, given that's what the last quarter was. In the end, Hawthorne kind of hang in there uh, in the final quarter for longer than it sort of looks. Curran gets a couple of goals early on, but yeah, um, hugely entertaining final term. I think there's. 15 goals in the last quarter, something like that. Nine of them are Essendon. Uh, it can't be 15 because we're four goals up at three-quarter time. But whatever it is, um, they, they get there comfortably uh, in the end. And, uh, yeah, it's sort of is something that Hawthorne supporters never really let go. Well, I'd say as a, as a neutral watching that, watching the electrifying 80s on that night, that was the th- – and I wasn't an Essendon supporter and not really an Essendon lover, i got to say. Um, that was the thing that I looked at at and said wow so that's what a grand final a really exciting you know finish or the emotion of a grand final that watching those highlights on the electrifying 80s that hit me and i went ah grand finals are really important because you could just see the the commentary the emotion from the players the way it sort of all came together that really hit me as oh these grand finals are huge the other thing that just, just throw in on that one not actually you don't really get a sense of it much of a sense of it on this but if you've ever watched that last quarter Peter Landy was a Hawthorne supporter um, and mm. I wouldn't say he was biased towards Hawthorne in his play but geez when Hawthorne didn't go as well as he liked them to he'd go super hard on them and in this game I mean I think Hawthorne's still in front and he starts bagging out Hawthorne that they're gone they're gone Essendon are coming home like a train uh, Hawthorne have stopped to a walk good night good night Hawthorne and it's like halfway through the last quarter and it's like scores a level um He'd jump off Hawthorne very quickly when when they didn't do too well. He probably had a wager on him uh, if if, well, if anything to go by. He actually well. says that. So, I think uh, in one yeah, of, that, that probably in one of the Hawthorne grand, it might have been the '83 Hawthorne grand final. You, you yeah. hear that, and he he talks about uh, when the siren goes. He talks about the fact, and if you got him at the odds, I got him this week. You'd be very Peter, happy. And I know that Peter Landy deep down in his own heart. That's our co-commentator here, our host of the show here. It has a little feeling towards Hawthorne, and there's must be a lump in your throat too, Pete. Got some very generous odds from Essendon supporters during the week too. It's six to four, Lou. It's beautiful. And there's Alan. <laughs>
Different time. <laughs> Gamble responsibly, Peter. Um, boys, to, to coin a phrase that was used in the sensational 70s, uh, we'll be back here next week uh, because that could... Cl- uh, we're we're going to have to come back next week, uh, 1977 grand final style, uh, because we've gotten through the first half of Electrifying 80s, like the actual original broadcast itself. We've gone through 1980 to 1984... Uh, we got, oh geez, the second half of Electrifying 80s. It puts the electrifying in Electrifying 80s. There is so much to look forward to. Uh, we will uh, catch you there. Part one of our take on the electrifying 80s from 1980 to 1984. And my guests, of course, were Adam Collins and Shannon Gill. This is the Australian Football Video Film Festival. My name is Dylan Leach. Hey, a big thank you to everyone who's waited out for this to come out. It's it's taken a while, but as you can tell by the first part, uh, it's been definitely worth it. Uh, if you do like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends and share the love around. Uh, and, of course, hit the subscribe button and we'll keep punching out the shows where we can. This is purely a labour of love. So uh, as much as I'd love to do this on a weekly or even daily basis, we probably don't have enough titles there, um, we uh, we try to get them out when we can. And we really appreciate everyone's positive feedback regarding the show. It is a lot of fun to make and it's all about the of footy and videos and just the history of the game. Uh, Coming up next on the Australian Football Video Film Festival, Electrifying 80s Part 2. Adam and Shannon will return in two weeks' time where we dissect the Electrifying 80s from 1985 right up until, you guessed it, 1989. And we're going to uncover yet another interview that wasn't included on the VHS release. This time it involves Sandy Roberts and John Kanga Kennedy. You must listen out for that one. This is the Australian Football Video Film Festival. My name's Dylan Leach with thanks to leaguetees.com.au. As always, a big thanks to Nick Bleeker for use of his studio in Brisbane and, of course, uh, all the listeners involved uh, that uh, listen to the show because that's who we do it for. We'll catch you soon. Part two, electrifying 80s. It's going to be a beauty. Don't miss it. (laughs) 